This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. It's Tuesday, August 16. I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike Smith today. So great to be with you. It's been one year since Kabul fell to the Taliban as American troops left in haste suddenly and Canadian troops too. And when those soldiers left, many told the Afghans they left behind, especially the ones who helped the Canadian forces, that, hey, We're going to come back. We're going to find a way to get you out. And while that did end up happening, it did only happen for relatively few. So what's holding Canada back from reaching its Afghan resettlement goal? We've got Jenny Kwan with us now. She's the NDP MP for East Vancouver, and she's critical of the Fed's response. Hi, Jenny. Good morning. It's so good of you to give us some time today. So thanks for that. Now, MPs and some veteran-led aid groups are urging ministers to do more, do more to help the 8,000 Afghans who assisted, basically helped us uh, when we were over there still. Now, could you help us understand who they are, what roles they played, who were those Afghans? Well, the Afghans who helped Canada with our missions when we were abroad, who where uh, we really should just consider them as part of the Canadian military family, are people who provided uh, interpretation. They are former interpreters. They are former security guards and drivers for the Canadian embassies. Uh, They are people who were contracted to provide support to the Canadian missions. These individuals helped us in our missions when we needed them the most. They put their lives at risk. They put their families' lives at risk. They are despised by the Taliban. They are some of the people who fought against, helped the Canadian military to fight against the Taliban. So as you can imagine, now the Taliban has taken over. What are they going to do with these individuals? They are hunting them down, and they are going to make them pay. Some of the um, former interpreters, former security guards, uh, are informing me that their colleagues have gone missing. Some of them have been killed. And, uh, and as we speak, they themselves are faced with these grave dangers. In fact, one former security guard uh, has told me that the Taliban has issued a second warrant letter for his arrest. And this will go beyond um, Afghanistan. That is to say, if he, he's in the, in the third country at the moment, in Pakistan, and they're going to be going after him in, the, uh, in this third country, in Pakistan. Another former interpreter has been living in a closet for uh, more than a year now, and he is so afraid for his life. And this is what's happening right now, and this is why it's critical for the Canadian government to do everything we can to bring them to safety and to bring their family to safety. So Jenny, you even understand the gravity of how dangerous it is for these uh, people who helped us, the Afghans who were interpreters, security guards that helped the Canadian mission there. Now, if it, given the gravity of how hard it is uh, and how risky it is for them, how dangerous their lives now feel, um, how could we possibly access them to get them out? Well, um, we can certainly use a variety of different measures. 
first and foremost, for the people who are still in Afghanistan, the government, the Canadian government needs to issue them a single travel journey document so that they can leave um, uh, Afghanistan to a third country. Because without that document, they cannot leave. And we cannot expect for the Afghans to show up at the Taliban's office uh, and to say to, to them, can you give us valid visas so can we, we can leave this country? The minute you do that, they're going to put a bullseye right on their forehead. The Taliban is going to immediately ask, why is your entire family needing to leave? Right? And, and so we cannot expect for them to, to undergo those kinds of uh, uh, measures to, to try to get to safety. Second, the government needs to waive the documentation requirements. Who are we talking about? We're talking about people who served Canada already. In fact, the Department of National Defense has sent uh, thousands of referrals to IRCC. These are individuals that they have already vetted, that they have employment contracts on record, biometrics has been done, and so on. So the security measures has already been done by the Department of National Defense. These files refer to, to IRCC, to immigration. They're lost in the system. IRCC cannot find 2,900 of those files. How is this even possible? IRCC is in complete chaos. It, you know, they've lost files. They can't find them. There's no explanation as to what happened to, to those individuals. In addition to that, they're individuals who follow exactly what the government told them to do. They send their email at the time when the government announced a special immigration measure for them to say, send your email to this um, special uh, email address. They did. A year ago, they did that. They have received nothing back from the government except for an automatic response. And to boot, on the government's website, even today, says, don't contact us. We will contact you. Well, they have not heard from the government at all. They are just left hanging. They have been abandoned by the government. Meanwhile, the government has set an arbitrary quota on how many of these um, in the Afghans that helped Canada that they will bring to safety. They've set an arbitrary number of 18,000. Well, there are so many other people who's not even heard back from the government when they sent in that email. No one's contacted them. No one's given them a file number. They don't know what's happening to their situation. And with the quota being full up, they're just going to be left behind. This cannot be allowed to happen. We have to remember these Afghans put their lives at risk and their families' lives at risk to help us. They protected us. Imagine security guards who literally put their lives in front of of, of, of the embassy staff to protect them, and now they're just being left behind as though they didn't exist. I mean, how could this be? How can Canada live with this? And then we know the Taliban are aggressively hunting them down with critical letters and warrant, warrant letters, searching for them and trying to take them down. That is the reality. If we do nothing and we just say, oh, this is so hard, we can't do more, this is the best we can do, well, it's not good enough. I say to the Liberal government, I say to the Prime Minister, I say to the Minister of Immigration, do better. Imagine if these people are your own families. What would you do? Jenny, thanks so much for your perspective this morning. 
Thank you. You are listening to The Mike Smith Show this Tuesday morning. I'm Raji Sohal and filling in for Mike today and all week. Well, if you step on the scale, are you setting the reading to kilograms or to pounds? And what if you tell someone your height? Are you six feet tall or one point something meters? Okay. Now, those examples are easy, but what about if you're baking? Because I follow British chef uh, Nigella Lawson's recipes, and I swear that if you weigh your ingredients versus measuring their volume, you'll get a more precise and more delicious result. At least that's what I think. So what are most Canadians doing when they're trying to measure? Well, leave it to Research Co. to find out. Our guest is Mario Conseco, president of Research Co. Good morning, Mario. Good morning, Reggie. Great to be here with you. I love your latest poll. Tell me what exactly you guys were looking at. Well, we kept uh, running into situations where we asked people about measurements and everybody gave us a different answer. And I thought, I want to put this to the test with a representative sample and essentially figure out a way uh, to to know how Canadians measure things. And there is no rhyme and reason. Uh, We've been in a metrification situation since 1985 and we still have a lot of Canadians who are relying on imperial measurements when they're looking at height or weight. Okay and how does that break down by age? Are some people sticking to a certain measurement and younger ones doing something different? What are you seeing? The age is the main difference that we see throughout the survey. We don't see a lot of uh, fluctuations on a regional basis. Uh, Also when it comes to gender the support uh, for a, a political parties in the last election doesn't really move that much. More than anything, it's age. And I guess one of the best examples would be what we see when we're measuring the distance between two places. Uh, 83% of Canadians aged 18 to 34 measure it in kilometers. Similar numbers for Generation X at 82%, but it drops to 60% with those over the age of 55. So you have essentially two out of five Canadians over the age of 55 who are still measuring everything in miles, even if all the signs are in kilometers. What accounts for that, Mario? Well, part of it is the fact that uh, they are the generation that has been doing this the longest. You know, they are used to the way they measure things. They think in feet and inches. They think in miles. And you have the younger generations that grew up during metrification, or in the case of millennials who were born after metrification. So they're more likely to be used to this type of measurement. You know, if in your 20s or 30s you calculated everything in Fahrenheit and feet and inches, you're going to continue doing that for the rest of your life. Yeah, I wonder also if people like just go for whatever's more flattering, especially when it comes to measuring with pounds, your weight in pounds <laughs> or kilograms, or you know what, I'm happy to go for a five kilometer run, but do not ask me to go for a five mile run. <laughs> well, pounds is an interesting one because it can definitely make it seem that everything is better. Uh, you know, the numbers are going to come down severely when you're looking at pounds and if you're looking at kilos. So that might be one of the reasons for people to look at pounds as the one thing they measure. I'm down 10 pounds. It's four kilos, but 10 suddenly seems a lot bigger than four. Yeah, sure. What I found really interesting is that while more than three in four Canadians, 77%, gauge the temperature outside their home in degrees Celsius, some 23% are still relying on degrees Fahrenheit. Why do you think that is? Well, Fahrenheit is an interesting dilemma because there's a, a very significant change when it comes to two different places. Uh, Fahrenheit for the temperature outside of our homes, 23% across the country, 30% with those 55 and over. 
But when it comes to the oven, it's 59% who rely on Fahrenheit. So we are using both measurements. It's not as if we said Celsius forever for whatever is happening outside our door, for whatever is happening inside our ovens. And this leads to all sorts of crazy things, particularly when you have coming people over, uh, sorry, uh, somebody who is visiting from the States and uh, they look at the numbers in Celsius and they assume that it is exceedingly cold because 20 degrees Celsius, if you look at it as if it's Fahrenheit, it's going to be very, very different from what, I, from what it actually is. And what did you see with regards to measuring liquids and using liters or, or quarts and gallons? This is the one area where the numbers are really low. We only have 16% of Canadians who are measuring in quarts and gallons, but it jumps to 32% with those uh, age 55 and over. But this is one of the things that is probably going to be the first one to go. When we look at this issue in the next five or 10 years, the millennials of today are going to become the middle-aged Canadians of tomorrow, and they aren't really looking at quarts and gallons. It's liters all the way for this generation even if you still have 32% of those 55 and over who say, I don't like the liters, I'm going to stick with quarts and gallons. That's so interesting. I'm also curious, Mario, for you, what did uh, your personal use show? Did you did it line up with the poll results? You know, it's really tricky for me because I grew up in Mexico and everything was metric. So adapting to a metric system wasn't that complicated when I moved to Canada. But when I talk to people of specific ages, Uh, they don't react very well when I use meters and centimeters to talk about a person's height. And then I have to do the conversion, which I've never done before. So it's kind of strange for me because I have to convert uh, to to something that would go back to, you know, essentially before 1985. (laughs) And it's not an easy situation because in Mexico, we never use the imperial system for anything. So it's kind of tricky. It's a learning curve, but it's backwards in a way because everybody uses metric except those who are used to using feet and inches. Oh, that's so interesting. Mario, thanks for giving us that info this morning. My pleasure, anytime. Welcome back. I'm Raji, filling in for Mike Smith today. The BC General Employees Union set up a picket line yesterday at distribution branch locations. No liquor or cannabis products will be distributed to BC businesses after 950 liquor distribution and wholesale workers walked off the job on the first day of a strike by the BCGEU. What does this mean for BC restaurants and bars? Joining us now is Ian Tostenson. He's the president and CEO of BC Restaurants and Restaurant and Food Services Association. Hello, Ian. Good morning, Roger. How you doing? Great. All right. How is this strike going to affect yeah. bars and restaurants across BC? Well, you know, we're, we're substantially in a different place than we thought we would be at this time, you know, having come out of the, the pandemic and now we're dealing with this. Um, so, you know, basically, I think, Roger, that we will be starting to feel stock problems within about five or six days. The system is very, um, uh, it's a very quick system. Most restaurants, they'll order once a week. Bigger restaurants will order a couple times a week. So, uh, you know, we don't have storage spaces. And so we're relying on a brisk distribution system. And we can buy, always have to buy from a government liquor store or a government warehouse. So the warehouses have been effectively shut. That means no product going to retail stores, both private and public. And those licensees that we're buying from warehouse can't buy, so it'll it's interrupting the supply system. But I think, you know, Roger, that the, 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 the this is really about being so disappointed that we are caught into something that we aren't party to. I realize the BCGU is trying to put some leverage on this one, but they don't understand. And I'm trying to get a hold of uh, Stephanie Smith to explain it to her. The economics of our industry right now are. So 
such so sensitive, so brittle, having gone through two and a half years of complete uncertainty. And then you add in the labor shortage, and now you've got business owners now trying to figure out, well, what's my next step? Do I get product? Do I don't have product? I've got tourists. I mean, it's just a mess. But Ian, I'm sure you've heard Stephanie Smith's comments in the public in the last 24 hours. I think she's aware of the concerns that you've just raised. I don't know if she would know the economics of a restaurant. Um, I, I really doubt that. Not too many people do. They realize that how quickly we can tilt tilt the boat here. Um, and and I think that, uh, you know, she did say that she was looking to try to create as little, at least inconvenience as possible, but she's going to inconvenience 15,000 restaurants and 200,000 employees pretty quick if we keep going down this the, the road we're on right now. Yeah, I do wonder if that's their point to try and get the government to pay more attention. Oh, it is for sure. Now we're yelling and screaming and everybody's yelling and screaming, and it's probably exactly what they want. I mean, I just hope they can settle this. We're not, you know, it's just not about what we think about what their negotiations are. We simply just want to be free and get back to business. We've got a long road ahead of us to rebuild this industry and these sort of things. So, you know, we, we need to, you know, create, uh, Raji, a, a long-term platform for business success, you know, to hire people, to start to create careers and stuff. And these sort of things just cause that interruption. So hopefully... It's going to be staccato that it's going to be, you know, maybe rotating strikes and maybe we'll move on to something else. And and I don't necessarily think that Stephanie's going to listen to what I have to say, but I do want her to make aware that, you know, restaurants very quickly can can uh, can run into financial problems because it's just a, such a slow margin business. Slow margin business that just barely got on its feet, too, right, with the pandemic? Well, that's it. And we're trying to, uh, you know, we're trying to, you know, create this a platform to say become, you know, an employer of choice. And if we start to have to reduce hours again and play with our hours and operations and all those sort of things, it just makes it difficult. So, yeah, it's I didn't think we'd be in this, but I actually thought that they'd get through this. And and uh, but it makes sense. I mean, understandably, liquor is a big leverage for the BCGU, and so they're playing their cards probably the right way, but it's going to hurt our industry if it goes on too long. Now, the good news is, if we if all liquor stores close in the province, we can still access direct product from BC wineries, yeah. and BC breweries, and that's awesome. I mean, we buy a lot of product from our BC uh, producers anyways, so it's not like we're going to become a dry province, but it will affect uh, spirits, those businesses that rely heavily on spirit sales, imported wine, imported beer. Well, and I wonder if down the road that could injure some of the imports that come in. If people get hooked on their BC wines and BC craft brews, uh, are they, because there's an opportunity for them to grow there, then are they going to turn their backs on imports? I know that's what happened to my husband in beer. Yeah, no, it's very true. When you want to taste, you believe. Um, and it's in the top on the importers. I mean, you know, importers are really small businesses. They're carrying a lot of inventory, and they're right on the margin. So when their product doesn't ship, uh, that the cascading effect of that is great. I mean, if we are not receiving product for, say, I don't know, maybe four days, we miss a cycle. So, you know, uh, we miss one week of ordering. We're probably two weeks behind in the system right now as, as they catch up. So, But, you know, as you say, um, maybe we'll switch to BC products and and, uh, there's BC spirit products as well, too, although 
those have to be purchased at the, the liquor stores. All the products that we purchase have to be purchased through government liquor stores. And Ian, you know the industry so well. You're talking to restaurant and bar owners all the time. How prepared are some of the businesses for this? Are, do, do the businesses have any ability to stockpile? Uh, we didn't, you know, no. I mean, I don't, I think a few people sort of thought, gee, I should I get a bit more, but it's a considerable investment too. Uh, there's two issues with that, Raji. Is number one is the capital required to to buy all that liquor, uh, but equally as as a problem problematic is the fact that we're going to store it because most restaurants don't have big storage areas. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think they were not. We weren't. I mean, I shouldn't say unprepared. There's not much we could have done in the past. What we are saying to people is, do not go out and panic buy right now. Don't go crazy. There's, there's lots of product in the system. I mean, if you go in and start to panic buy, you're going to take away from the person behind you or the restaurant behind you that needs a little product. So uh, I think this will straighten out. I'm optimistically all the time in my life, but I think this is going to straighten out hopefully sooner than later. Okay, you mentioned there, do not panic buy. I feel like that's a really important one. We can almost just play it on repeat. Everybody, do not panic buy. But what do you think <laughs> customers are, are going to do then? Well... My son called me this morning and said, gee, you think I should stock up the weekend? I'm having people over. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, nah, just go normal. And uh, because that's going to tilt the system even worse. I mean, what people have to understand is that the products are not coming. There's no supply into the stores. So once it's gone right now, they're done. So share. <laughs> Be kind and share. There you go. Ian, yeah. thanks for your thoughts this morning. Thanks so much, Roger. Hey, I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike Smith today. You probably already heard this story in the news. There's been these threatening one-page posters. They've been plastered around the downtown east side, and they read to the homeless in the area, leave now or suffer the consequences of your selfish actions. And police say they don't know yet who put them up, but they're looking for more information. Sarah Blythe joins us on the show now. She's ED for the Overdose Prevention Society. Hey, Sarah. Hi, how are you? I'm okay, but this story is quite disturbing, Sarah. What was your reaction to first hearing about these posters? Well, I just, it's just disgusting considering the fire, you know, that people actually did lit, lit, lit people, homeless people on fire in Langley. And, uh, you know, so I, you know, we've got to take these seriously and hopefully it's been caught on, you know, video somewhere or someone knows uh, something and, uh, and we can find this person who's doing this. And because uh, it is scary. I just got a phone call from someone who said that they were going to come down to the downtown east side and tell people how to live and uh uh, from from somewhere else and it was a you know a not trackable phone call so you know it's it's scary when we you know stigmatize homeless people and uh we really got to be careful of you know treating everyone like a criminal so that people can think that they need to take action against our most vulnerable community a lot of them are seniors people with mental health and disabilities um, a lot of, you know, innocent people, uh, you know, scared and at risk of, of, you know, this kind of violence towards them. Sorry, so, Sarah, you got a personal call in, on your own phone? I did. I got a personal call from a woman who said that she didn't live in Vancouver and that she was coming down here to, um, to teach people how to live. 
something wow. along those lines um or or you know it was it was it sounded threatening to me and um you know she anyways it's just it's it's a just terrible to think that you know a lot like people have to be careful because you know with all the the publicity that you know homeless get with um in this encampment's getting, uh, it really, you know, people seem to think and stigmatize people into thinking that, you know, these vulnerable people have, you know, options or that, you know, they're all violent and or, you know, all of these things when it's just not the case. Um, there's a lot of innocent people that really need help and and they need, um, you know, they need services, they need housing um, and so now they're subject to people's anger um, and violence. Sarah, have you seen this kind of thing happen before? Uh, well, yeah, we've seen it uh, uh, even on TV. We've seen it where people, you know, burn people that are homeless that are asleep. Um, I, you know, I think people, who knows, you know, I think there's an arsonist here. Who knows, maybe that's an arsonist that's, that's actually doing this to people. Uh, in the downtown east side. So I don't know what, you know, we don't know what's going on, but it needs to be uh, investigated. And, uh, you know, I, and I think uh, hopefully we can find the person who's doing this. Who's putting up yeah. the posters uh, with these violent yeah. threats in them. In a Twitter yeah. post I mean, just I take yesterday. It seriously. I, you know, I take it seriously. Um, I, I, you know, wouldn't be surprised about anything these days. So, um Yeah. The, the fact that they actually put the posters up everywhere and were delivering them. thats And even downtown, I'm hearing that posters went up. Gosh. So it's, it's just disgusting. Vancouver um, Mayor Kennedy Stewart says that, uh, at least he wrote this on Twitter, that unhoused people in Hastings deserve our support, our friendship, compassion, and urges anyone with information to contact the Vancouver police. Do you think that overall people have a growing empathy for the unhoused or do you feel it's going the other way? Well, I think with, you know, um, some of the negative campaigning that the the uh, police are doing in regards to, um, you know, trying to get their budget increased, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, and, and I, I really feel like it has does have an effect, you know, just media release about homeless encampments and, and, and things like that. Um, I think it's having an effect on how people see and, and feel and stigmatize homeless people and just a, a lot of media coverage about people, you know, you'll see people actually come down like people in a zoo and want to be part of this, you know, encampment uh, thing by photo shoot, you know, taking photos and selfies and, and constant photography down there right now. It's really disturbing. And it's sad because, you know, uh, these people are people's children and aunts and uncles and, family members and, you know, that are just having some difficult times in their life right now. And they really need people to be more understanding and push for the things that will actually help, like housing. Yeah, one of the things that was on the poster that I just found really disturbing was leave now or suffer the consequences of your selfish actions. What do you think that wording means, selfish actions? I don't know. I think, uh, you know, I don't know what's in this person's head, except for that they're, a, you know, a, a terrible person um, that, you know, but the, the leave now is just where to, are they going to go? I mean, do, does this person have housing for people? I mean, there is no place for them to go. So, you know, we just need to make it more comfortable for people working with the firefighters in the city 
um, to try and make it so that it's safe for people until there is housing solutions available. And I'm hearing that there are some some work being done to try and figure out the housing. But one of the issues was that the police and the engineers just got up and left without telling anyone and, and without a plan in place, which left everybody sort of scrambling to find out a, a plan for people. So I just, uh, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And Sarah, but, the, to- uh, the toxic drug supply uh, numbers we know for the crisis, they're just terrible. It's raging yeah. on and there's now this yeah. chaotic tent removal situation on top yeah. of that. And then we've got anonymous violent threats on posters. Yeah. How are you feeling well, in general about the downtown east side these days? I, I, you know, it's terrible that the overdose numbers are, are terrible. And, you know, if we're going to send people out of that neighborhood anyways, it would be terrible because, you know, you're going to send people into the shadows and that's where, you know, people are dying. They die in housing. They die in alleys alone. I mean, in some ways we're better having people in a place where there's a lot of services that they can get to so that they, that there's people monitoring overdoses. I just dealt with an overdose a few hours ago. So, I mean, um, you know, it's good to have people that are visible in it and with other people who are trained around them um, as opposed to in the alleys. Um, but at the end of the day, we really just need housing and proper services for people. And, you know, there's just there's a lot to work on. But um, but, you know, the, the current situation of, you know, just this idea that just to kick them out of there and everything else is it's damaging, it's harmful, and it makes people feel like they could, you know, can be vigilantes to an issue that of people that um, don't deserve any kindness and care. Okay, Sarah, thank you so much yeah. for your time today. Okay, take care. Welcome back to the program. I'm Raji Sohal. In for Mike Smith today, Ottawa is known for having one of the more liberal euthanasia policies in the world, really. For some, that's a sign of personal rights and freedoms. For others, it's potentially harmful, especially for disabled patients. We're talking about this because the Associated Press published a story that quotes an Ontario medical ethicist who was secretly recorded reminding a disabled patient that he was costing the system, this is a quote, north of $1,500 a day along with the topic of euthanasia put to this patient. But the patient said he hadn't expressed an interest in medically assisted death. He said he hadn't brought that up. So lots of questions and concerns there for the disability community. Tim Stanton weighed in on it, and he's the director of UBC's Canadian Institute for Inclusion and Citizenship. Let's welcome him to the program now. Hi, Tim. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Tim, you called medical assistance in dying uh, probably, this is a quote again, probably the biggest existential existential threat to disabled people since the Nazis program in Germany in the 1930s. What did you mean by that? Well, I think it's the, it wasn't a comparison to what's happening here in terms of, of the nature of that, obviously, but, but it's really... It's, if you look at the cases that that are happening now, so you'd mentioned the Foley case, the Nichols case is mentioned, but but we have many other cases of disabled people either being encouraged to to seek euthanasia or are are seeking euthanasia because they can't get uh, appropriate housing supports. They're living in poverty. They're you know young adults forced into long term care facilities because. Uh, we won't provide the home care supports. So we're, we're seeing this pattern that's starting to build. Uh, 
And and really, it is it is particular concern for disabled people because one of the quirks of our laws is that it actually includes disability as one of the categories specifically that's eligible. So the Foley case, the one that I just mentioned in the intro there, you don't think that's just a, a bizarre one-off? You think this is more common? I, I don't know if the specifics of that case are replicated, but but in terms of his experience and treatment in the healthcare system, no, I don't think it's a one-off case. We had a very, very prominent case here a number of years ago in, on the North Shore with uh, a gentleman who was, uh, this was pre-made, uh, where the health authority called the RCMP to remove him from the hospital. And all he wanted to do was get out into an appropriate community placement. And all they offered him was institutionalization in prison. So no, it's 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 not a one-off, and and I think it's probably fair to assume that this is the tip of the iceberg because most people, it just goes quietly away. Tim, I think a lot of people associate euthanasia with the right to choose a medically assisted death when when one is suffering with a terminal illness at the end of a long life. I think that's what a lot of people think in their minds about what euthanasia is. What don't people know about what it means when it comes to disabled patients? Well, the the, the most worrying change in the law was, was Bill C-7 uh, uh, a little over a year ago which removed, there was the clause in the original legislation that said death needed to be reasonably reasonably foreseeable, which, as you pointed out, is most people's understanding of what we have. That, you know, it's folks who don't want to go through those last few weeks or months uh, uh, with cancer. I think that's how most of us understand it, but, but we are way, way beyond that now. So you don't need to be dying. Uh, you don't need to seek treatment or accept treatment, uh, which is another quirk of Canada that takes us beyond most countries, that the physicians have an obligation to tell you what's available. But if you say, no, I don't want to go there, you don't, you don't have to. So, so even where treatments might be available to alleviate suffering, in Canada, you, you're not obliged to even try that. Uh, so, and, and we're about to legalize it for mental illness only. Yeah, that mental illness clause is, uh, it's interesting. When the ban to, uh, to assisted suicide ended in 2016 in Canada, the, that argument was around personal freedoms with an individual, when an individual, individuals at uh, death's door, like we were talking about. The conversation has since expanded. You mentioned Bill C-7 there. Some say now it's dangerously expanding to the possibility of including mental illness? Well, it's not, not a possibility. It is. So, it will be shortly legal in Canada simply with having a psychiatric diagnosis that two physicians deem irremediable or irredeemable, which many physicians or psychiatrists will tell you is impossible to ever determine. Uh, that's all you need to, to seek euthanasia. So, so you're in a period of, of deep depression, longstanding depression. It's not uncommon for, to have suicidal thoughts. Now you can go to your your physician uh, and, and have help with that. So, Tim, isn't that bordering on eugenics? Well, it is. A, I mean, it's it's a loaded term, but 
I prefer to do it as a quiet eugenics. Nobody is, nobody is setting out to get rid of the disabled, but the impact is the same. That we're, we're, we live in a society that's, that's pretty hostile to disabled people, that ableism is still pretty rife. Uh, in that kind of context, people may believe they're doing a compassionate act when, in fact, they're simply acting on, on mistaken views about what it means to live with a disability. And so the, the outcome is, is yes, it, it has a very eugenic outcome. So what about to the people who say mental illness or not, disability or not, it should remain the choice of the patient, that we should have the possibility out there. It's okay if a doctor tells somebody, if a medical ethicist tells a patient, hey, this is one of your options. What about for the folks out there who say, you know what, my body, my choice, like let me know what's possible. Well, but you need a real choice. So the the cases of... Uh, Sean Taggart on the island. You know, he was a man in his 40s. He had a degenerative condition. He had spent a lot of time and effort and money to convert his house to be able to stay there. Uh, He just wanted to spend time with his son in the years he had left. The health authority wouldn't fund the, I think it was something like four hours a day more of health uh, home care and said, your option is to go into a long-term care facility. He's 40 years old, 42 or something. Uh, so he said, that's not a life. That's not a life. I'll, I would rather die. So he applied and was accepted and was euthanized under our MAID laws. So that's not a choice. That's coercion. And and that's what so many disabled people face. They're, they're, they're the group most likely to live in poverty in this country the group most likely experience violence, uh, precarious homelessness. Under those kind of circumstances, which we create and we can alleviate, it, that's not a choice. If we lived in a perfect system, yeah, I, I wouldn't have a whole lot of problems with that for people saying that. But until people actually have a real choice, it, it's not about personal freedom. It's about coercion. So for you, Tim, a real choice would be the country, our government, offering actual resources that would help an, a patient fulfill a satisfying life rather than um, putting this to them and saying, hey, you know, your life costs too much. Yeah, and, and the Foley case, he, he had said he would happily leave hospital if he got what he considered acceptable home care. But all they offered him was a home care provider that, that he had said had abused him in the past and he wasn't willing to go back to that situation. So, yeah, it's really about offering people the means to an assisted life before we start offering them the means to an assisted death. Okay, Timothy, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Okay, well, thank you for having me.